All right, Psalm 90, if you'll turn there with me. As we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together, you may notice that we now come to what's referred to as Book 4. In this collection of 150 Psalms, they're broken up into five different books, and Psalm 90 through Psalm 106 uh, give to us now this fourth book of a collection of Psalms in this, as we've talked about, Jewish hymnal that God's given to us by his spirit and through different servants. And Psalm 90 is kind of a psalm that stands apart from the other psalms that we have in that. Uh, In this psalm, it's the only psalm that we have identified as being given to us from the human authorship of Moses. You may notice at the beginning of the psalm there, uh, we're told at least in our English Bible here in Psalm 90 that this was a prayer of Moses the man of God. Now, this is the only psalm that we are aware of that Moses was inspired by the Spirit to record, or at least the only one that he recorded that ended up making it into the canon of Scripture. But it is unique in the sense that that would very likely make it potentially the oldest of all the psalms. Many of the psalms are written by David and other contemporaries around the time of David. So if this is a psalm from Moses, then this is most likely the oldest of all the inspired psalms that we have, that the Holy Spirit preserved for us and has given to us. And of course, Moses seen so much of what God did as a leader in the nation of Israel. And Psalm 90 really, as we look at it together, you'll see is, is basically a psalm of contrast. It's basically a psalm that contrasts the greatness of God and the immortality of God. It portrays God as the awesome, almighty, eternal God in contrast to weak and fragile and mortal humanity. And it basically shows us a contrast. God is immortal. God is eternal. He's the almighty, self-sufficient God. And that is contrasted with the fact that we are weak and fragile that we are frail and we are mortal human beings, really, whose life is just but a vapor and, and just a simple thread in the hands of an almighty God who's controlling all those things ultimately. So the psalm begins by declaring, Moses says here, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, he says, in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses begins this psalm putting the focus first, as we said, upon the greatness of God. He talks about how God is the eternal God, the creator God. He describes how because of that, it was so important that they found all of their root and their life in God. You notice that he says, beginning in verse one there, Lord, and again, that's our Hebrew tetragrammaton, the YHVH. So whether that is Yahweh or Jehovah, how ultimately it is pronounced, but he is the name of God. And he says, Lord, you have been, notice he says, our dwelling place in all generations. Now, when you think about our dwelling place, the idea of a dwelling place, that's the place where you live, right? Your dwelling place, it's where you live. You might say it's your home. It's the place that you belong And as he uses this analogy, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. He's saying, Lord, it's in you that our lives have always been rooted. Lord, we live in you. 
Lord, you are our life. Lord, we belong in you or in connection to you or in relationship with you. And it's a fitting analogy because all of our lives belong to God because he's created us. He knit us together in our mother's womb, the Bible tells us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And from the first man, Adam, who God formed of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, literally the Hebrew is the breath of lives, indicating that God, in a sense, breathed the the lives of humanity into Adam, who, of course, from him, all peoples would come from one man, ultimately, of humanity. And our life belongs to God as he created us. And so because of that, it would make the most sense that our life be in relationship with God, that our life would be tied to God and that we would make God our life at the root of his essence. And, and I think it's just a very fitting thing. The idea is, Lord, our life is in you. For all generations, you've been our life. You've given us life. Our life is about you. It's about living for you. It's about serving you. That is the root and the main purpose of human existence. And really, that's the root to finding purpose and meaning for your entire life. Most people who are struggling for meaning in their life is because they think that their life is about something other than living for God. And we can live for all types of other things, right? And and so many of us spend our lives for years and years and years in a sense, living for this or living for that primarily or living just for ourselves, trying to, you know, self-preservation and self-assertion and living. For, and, and people wonder why they're empty and life's meaningless and seems to have no purpose because the root of our life really is to glorify God and to live for God and live relationship with God. And until you do that, you really don't find the root meaning of why you really exist that God gave us our lives, and so our lives belong to him. He is our home, our dwelling place. And I think it's a beautiful analogy as well because you know, our, our dwelling place or our home is not only a place where we belong, but it's also kind of the place, if you would as well, it should be anyway, I would hope, where we kind of detach from the world, right? And, and most of us, if we have a, a decent home life to some degree, you look forward to going home. Because when you go home to your dwelling place, whatever your dwelling place is, that's the place where you can you kind of rest. It's the place where you can kind of relax, hopefully, and there's there's peace in your dwelling place. And you kind of detach from work and chaos and the craziness and the difficulties of being out in the world. And when you get to go home, that's where you have some peace and you can kind of relax and have a degree of rest. And I think it's just a reminder as well that that is what God is to us. That as we live in relationship with God, God becomes our place of rest. God becomes our peace. God becomes the place where we're able to somewhat have our burdens lifted off of us. And as we live in close relationship with God, he becomes our dwelling place in the sense that that becomes our refuge, the place where we find peace and rest in the same way when we enter into our physical dwelling place. That's how we find rest. And as we walk in relationship with him through all generations, that's where we find those very things because they're meant to be found in God. Verse two, he then begins to just focus upon the the greatness of God and the eternal nature of God. He says, Lord, verse two, before the mountains were brought forth. Notice they didn't always exist. Someone brought forth the mountains. Now, we don't have very uh, great example of mountainous regions around here, but if you have been to areas or just watch a video or have seen the magnitude of some of the mountains and mountain ranges that exist on this planet, and you, you, 
you know, you're kind of astonished by how incredibly large and majestic these things are. And keep in mind, someone brought those things into existence. A God spoke those things into existence. When the Bible tells us creation, it speaks of how God spoke things with his spoken word by power. And he brought those things into existence. And he says, Lord, before you ever brought forth the mountains or ever formed the earth and the world, again, God's the creator. He created all these things. He says, even before those things existed, from everlasting to everlasting, the Hebrews literally from vanishing point to vanishing point. The idea is as far as you can look one direction to as far as you can see from the other direction. He says, you are God. This kind of speaks to that reality of, of you know, that God is the beginning and the end. He doesn't just know the beginning and he doesn't just know the end. Literally, the Bible says he is the beginning of all existence, because he existed even before creation existed, before the world existed, before we existed. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you, notice he doesn't say, were God, he says, you are God. The idea is the perpetual present tense. To God, everything is in the present tense. Everything that spans all the way back to from whatever a beginning was when God was there, all the way out through all of time and eternity says from everlasting to everlasting, from vanishing point to vanishing point, you are God. God is so great. He spans all of that. He's the timeless God. He lives outside of the time continuum. He's not limited by time, by days, by hours as you and I are. And I don't know about you, but to me, that is something that I find incredibly comforting. And this idea of God, you have been our dwelling place. Why would you not want to live in relationship with a God whose existence is from everlasting to everlasting? You want to talk about having somebody on your team who's got a lot of experience? Who's taken human beings through all types of different challenges? Right As we navigate things in our current day and, and we face our own personal challenges here and there and, and we're, oh, I don't know how I'm going to handle this and I never expected this to come. Or, and, our, and our problems and our trials can seem so big to us and very challenging to us. But to realize, if you think, from the first breath of Adam and even prior to that, God has been with and helped every single human being through every experience of life that we go through in humanity. Through all the generations, right? We have different generations even represented in this room tonight. But prior to our generations, generations and generations and generations before us who lived in different ways on different continents and went through different things, God was with them and he was the all-sufficient, all-powerful, everlasting God through all those generations. And that's what gives us rest, that we can rely upon a God like that. And we can know that he is the self-existent God that nothing is going to change him. And he says, verse three, now beginning to draw this contrast, right? So he, he proposes this reality about God's greatness, that he is the immortal, eternal, almighty God. And then verse three, now he begins to demonstrate the contrast as we go into the Psalm. He says, verse three, speaking to the Lord, and you turn man to destruction and say, return O children of men. Now, when he says there, you turn man to destruction, the, the Hebrew term that he uses there for destruction is literally a Hebrew term that means to, to, to grind to powder or, or to grind something down to a form that's dust-like or like powder. And so when he says here, Lord, you turn man 
back into dust. And then he says, return, O children of man. Literally return. The, the, the Hebrew there is literally where we get our Hebrew term Adam. Return man back to Adam. So in a sense, what's being described here is not so much God making a call of repentance, return. Like God does say that sometimes, and he has to because we all like sheep have gone astray. Return back to your creator. But here it's not necessarily a call to repentance. It's a declaration of a, a reality spiritually that, that, here, that Moses understood of the mortality of man. And that that is an inevitable thing. So he says here, Lord, you as the great eternal everlasting God, you turn man back into dust. It's a reference to call to mind again what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19 there, where when sin entered into the world, remember God told Adam after he gave him life and fellowship with him, he says, you shall not eat of the tree, you know, all the trees of the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day you eat of it. You shall surely die. And of course, we know Adam disobeys God. The curse of sin comes upon humanity. And in Genesis 3, there's a list of a number of different things that come from the curse. And part of that, Genesis 3, verse 19, tells us that God says, In the sweat of your face shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. Again, work was a sanctified thing. Part of the curse is God says, Now work's going to be hard. So it went from work to hard work. That's why it's hard. I tell my kids all the time when they complain about work as they're growing, I say, that's why it's called work. It's called work. It's, that, that's part of the curse now. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not play. It's called work. And God said, working will be hard. It'll be tough now that humanity, God was working with, with God and Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden. Adam had a productive thing to do, but God said, now you're going to have to till the ground and by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to struggle and it's going to be hard to survive and to provide, and it's going to be difficult. And then God said, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Remember, that's how God created Adam. Created him from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, he became a living being. And the Bible says, of these physical bodies anyway, that the physical makeup, the composition of our fleshly, earthly tent is of the earth. The same elements that exist in common soil in the earth, when you break down the human body, we exist basically of the same essential parts. Only with a, a little bit of water and a miraculous creator behind it, we have these marvelous bodies. It's amazing what God can do with some dirt, isn't it? If you really think about it. But the Bible says of the physical body, which is mortal, it doesn't last forever, from dust we were taken to dust we shall return. That's what happens to the physical body. It decomposes, it goes back into the, to the dirt of the ground. The spiritual part of us, the eternal part of us, lives on either with the everlasting God or in everlasting destruction if we reject God and his son Jesus Christ and don't want to be with him. But here, this is the reference. God, you're everlasting, but us, mankind, we're going to return back to dust you're going to turn us back and to, to, to destroy you're going to destroy our mortal bodies because that's what happens they decompose to dust they return and here this is an inference moses is referencing even from the garden of eden this very spiritual reality and then he says verse four for a thousand years in your sight now again back to the contrast we're we're dust like we're mortal and frail he says for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. So he says here of God, he says, Lord, with you, it's completely different. 
you live outside of time constraints. Because God is the eternal God and he lives in an eternal dimension and we're in this temporal material realm, time is measured different from God's perspective than from our perspective. You see what he says right there in verse three or verse four, he says, a thousand years in your sight. So, you know, we measure life right by days and weeks and months and years. And a thousand years seems like a really long time to us. But he says a thousand years in your sight, God is the God of everlasting to everlasting. It's just like a day to you. So a thousand years goes by for us, man, that's a really long time. And, God, and from God's perspective, it's, it's been about the, the duration of a day, completely different. You want to talk about a contrast. Now, this is what's so frustrating to us because we're confined to the realm of time and God's not. And so then we always struggle with God's timing, right? We're going, God, I've been praying for that for a thousand years. And he says, really? From my perspective, it's, I hear you, but it's, it's only been about a day to me. And, and, and we struggle with that and we get frustrated. Remember Peter in his writing in the New Testament infers the same idea in regards to, you know, that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he says, look, God's long suffering because people were scoffing and saying, what's this? The Lord's going to return. The Lord's going to return. People have been saying forever the Lord's going to return. And they start to scoff at the second coming of Jesus. And they start to say, people have been saying that for generations. I mean, what is that, just a scare tactic? How many times are they going to keep telling us Jesus is coming back? And they start mocking and scoffing this idea that just because the Lord has not returned yet. And Peter says, look, we need to remember that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And he's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So just because you don't understand God's timetable, don't start blaming God. Be thankful that God's merciful. Be thankful that God's patient. Be thankful that God can wait out a thousand years. <laughs> and to him, it's just like a day, even though it's very frustrating to us. But he just draws this incredible contrast that, again, he says, with you, Lord, a thousand years. It, it's just like a day in, in your sight when it passes. It's just like a watch in the night, one night and it's over. And then speaking again of the difference, the frailty and the the fragileness of humanity and our mortality. He says of the mortality of us, unlike the eternal God, he says of man, you carry them away like a flood and they are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass, which grows up and in the morning it flourishes and grows up. And then in the evening it's cut down and withers. He refers to how our life is so fragile as mortal human beings that our life can be over in an instant. Notice he says there in verse uh, four verse five he says of humanity in our frailness as in our mortal condition he says you can take away someone's life like a flood right what does a flood do a flood is something that it, it kind of quickly comes in and just sweeps everything away right if you get a tsunami or a a quick flood of water it can very quickly come in and it can a flood can wipe everything out very quick and, and what the psalmist is declaring is that can happen with a life. In a moment, God, a life can just be swept away, taken away very quickly. In just an, a quick instance, something can happen, a flood of destruction, and just something quickly comes. I mean, look at what we just watched on the news recently with this unfortunate situation of the person at the Christmas parade. People there at a Christmas parade, and in a flood of evil and selfish, sinful humanity, lives lost, Almost 50 people injured, 
Many people are celebrating Thanksgiving very differently now, tomorrow, because in a flood very quickly of just the evil of mankind, lives were snuffed out and taken away. No one expected that, but life can happen like that. You know, isn't it interesting? He also uses the analogy like a sleep, right? Like a sleep. Yeah, you know, oftentimes we, we go asleep, you take a nap, or if you sleep decently and don't struggle with sleep, you remember particularly when you were a kid, when you would fall asleep and then you'd wake up the next morning and like, how does time pass that fast? It's like you just fell asleep and then you wake up six, seven, eight hours later and you're like, what? It's morning? And it's amazing how when we sleep, Something in this mystical experience of sleep where time passes super fast, it seems like anyway, right, when we sleep. And so he says that's what can happen very quickly. Life can pass like a sleep. You shut your eyes and it's over. In a, and we, we use the term like in a blink of an eye, right? We say things, do we not? Especially as we get older, we start to say, man, it's like I blink my eyes and my kids are all adults now. Where did the time go? How did that happen? And the older you get, doesn't seem like the older you get, the faster it goes, right? When you're younger, time takes forever because when you're younger, you're always waiting for everything. You want to be this age and you want to wait forever to get your license. You wait forever to, and, and it takes forever. And then the older you get, it's like every time you blink, it's Thanksgiving again tomorrow. What? Weren't we just figuring out last Thanksgiving if we could even all get together for Thanksgiving? I just, like in a blink of an eye, Another year goes by. And, and so often, you know, in a blink of an eye, you blink and all of a sudden, another loved one passes. In the blink of an eye, our life could pass. We have no guarantees. We have no assurance. We're mortal beings. We're frail. When he says, contrary to the way God is, we are mortal and fragile, just like the grass that grows up in the morning. And then later that day, that same grass can be mowed back down. He says, our lives are short they're like a vapor. They're so fragile. And this is the contrast he's trying to draw here. Verse 7, he says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all of our days have passed away in your wrath, and we finish our years like a sigh. Now, no doubt here, I believe Moses in verse 7 through 9 is contemplating the very thing that he had been watching for many, many years, which was a long funeral march for all the nation of Israel. As he describes here in verses 7, 8, and 9, how their lives seemed were being consumed one by one by the anger and the wrath of God, and their iniquities were something that God was allowing them to suffer for, and he's referring to that. I think Moses is describing here what this poor guy watched as a shepherd of Israel, which was for an entire generation. Do you, can you imagine how many funerals Moses presided over in the wilderness or watched or participated in? Remember Numbers 13 and 14? If I can call to your remembrance, it tells us that as God delivered the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he brings them to the border of the promised land. And they send in the 12 spies and God says, go ahead, go, go spy. And they go in, they spy it out and they come back, the 12 spies. Remember, and Joshua and Caleb, they are in a spirit of faith, stoked and excited. Look, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's go in there. Let's take this land. Let's take God's promise. Let's believe the Lord and go in and enjoy what he's promised to us. But the other 10, remember, 
had a spirit of unbelief. And they said, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants in that land. And we look like grasshoppers in their sight and, and they'll destroy us. And there's no way. Why did God bring us out here into the wilderness just to let us get killed? And they started complaining and rebelling against God's will and what God intended for them. And they started resisting the blessing that God wanted to bring them into. And ultimately, because of their sin of unbelief and rebellion against God's plan and purpose for their life, what happened? Ultimately, God chastised them for that. It tells us in Numbers chapter 14, this, that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I've heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, your children, whom you said would be victims, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each of you, you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will surely do all this evil to the congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed and there they shall die. And so God's chastisement or judgment upon their sin and rejection and rebellion against him was God said for 40 years this generation that refused to follow me I will allow them 20 years old and older that whole generation to die off as they wander around this wilderness and they will wander in the wilderness until that entire generation 20 years old and above dies off and then the next generation would then have the opportunity to enter into the promised land that God intended for them and so as Moses led them those 40 years, 40 years through the wilderness, it basically was like a long funeral march. I mean, he just watched person after person, friend after loved one, after friend, after associate die and pass away over, you know, four decades. And so Moses, no doubt here with the, the heart of heaviness and realizing these realities, he says, Lord, we've been consumed, he says, by your anger. Lord, I've watched lives just fall by the wayside. Our iniquities have been before you. And even verse 80 says, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Boy, that's always a good reminder there, our secret sins. Is there really any such thing, truthfully, a secret sin? It, it may be our secret, but it ain't ever a secret to God. It ain't ever a secret to God because even the unbelief in their hearts and the rejection in their hearts, God saw that. Nothing is secret before God. Everything in our life, our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, our deeds, the things we do in private or in our personal life, it's never secret. It's always in the presence of God. God sees it all. And here Moses understood that and that sin has a consequence attached to it. It, it ruins lives. It destroys lives. And he says, Lord, our days, they've, they've been passing away in your wrath and we finish our years like a sigh. Verse 10, he then says of the 
shortness and, and the limitation of human life as mortality has its effect. He says, verse 10, the days of our lives, or excuse me, the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they are 80 years, yet their boast, the idea is the absolute best that we can boast of in this life is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. So notice, under the inspiration of the Spirit here, as Moses was watching this generation pass and die off in the wilderness, Moses says the days of man are limited. He said our lives, he says, are 70 years. And he says, if you've made it 70 years, that's good. And if somehow, he says, by reason of strength, if God gives you an extra boost of strength, you may make it to 80. But again, the word of God, again, telling this limitation to our human lives. And again, under the inspiration of the spirit, it's interesting how, you know, here we are and we're trying to do everything we can to extend lives. But, but look at statistically still where we're at with all of our great inventions. Typically somewhere between the, the range of 75 to 80 years old, men and women, typically that is the average age that most people even in good health condition, do typically pass from a statistical perspective. It's almost as if God knew humanity better than we did. Now, when you think about that, and I consider that reality, this is why he's going to say, look, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The idea is realizing this reality. I mean, if you just take that into consideration, let's say, you know, if on average, that typically we may get 75 years on this earth, well, let's just divide that by three. That means every 25 years, a third of your life is gone. If you're 25 tonight, you've already lived a third of your life. If you're 50, two-thirds of your life is done. You've got a third left. If you're anywhere beyond that, you can factor the percentages. Be really thankful. Be really thankful tomorrow. Be really thankful tomorrow. Look, but there's a soberness to that because what that does is cause a person, if they really want to have perspective, to say, you know what? Lord, if over half my life has already been lived, help me to finish well. Lord, I may only have 20% of my life left. I may only have 10% of my life left. How do you want to spend the last 10% of your life? What really matters? What doesn't matter? And if you've wasted a percentage of your life not living for God, then now's the time to take inventory and say, you know what? Lord, I want to live for you. I want the last percentage of what I have left here to be used for your purposes and for your glory. Moses started his ministry at 80 years old. God gave him an extension. I can't promise that to you. <laughs> the very guy that got 120 years is saying we're only getting 70 or 80, but the Spirit's leading him to say these things. But again, important to take that proper perspective he says lord 70 years that's about what we get if by reason of strength you get 80 and he says and even if we get that yet the best the boast of life is is labor and sorrow that is you know if if we get an extra 10 years oh i hope i get an extra 10 years i hope i get an extra 10 years it's just 10 more years he says of hardship and toil <laughs> because life's not easy right and typically the latter years it gets harder there's more sorrow because more people pass that we love and our health deteriorates and it gets harder to do the things that we could do when we were younger. So the latter years, we call them the golden years. I don't know. He says, 
Even the boast of those who make it to 80 is hard. There's labor, there's toil, there's sorrow connected to those things. And look, he's pointing out this reality of our mortality is inevitable because he says, even if you make to that 80-year point, he says, but ultimately soon it's cut off. And what's he say there, verse 10? He says, and then we fly away. It's cut off and we fly away. The idea there, it's cut off and we fly away, is death is inevitable, the word of God is saying. It's an inevitable experience. And it is a wise person who lives embracing that reality to realize at some point you can do everything possible eat right exercise right do essential oils i don't know what else you want to do everything you want to but eventually that life will be cut off and the eternal part of you and me will depart from this physical body which will return to the decomposition of the dust of the earth And that eternal part of us, our soul and spirit, will fly away. And the important thing is, where's that eternal spirit of you and I's life going to end up eternally? That's what matters most. And that's where our perspective should come from. Hey, this life isn't going to last forever. I need to be thinking about what happens beyond this life. And making sure that is in a right way between me and my creator. So here he speaks of this thing. And then he says, Lord, am I right? And he says, who knows the power of your anger? Who as the fear of you, so is your wrath. The idea is, God, you're a mighty God. We should live in fear of you. And then this beautiful statement, verse 12, in light of these realities says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Again, notice, teach us to number our days days not our weeks our years our months he says look there are a limited number of years we get that's what he talked about in the prior verses psalm 139 says however all of our days were written in god's book before one of them came to be there is a set number of days that god knows that he has given to us And he says, so you know what? It would be wise. The wise person begins to learn how to realize, you know what? If I have a limited number of days on this earth, then I should make every day count. That's the idea. I should realize every day of life God gives to me is precious, right? Because we could blink and that could be our last day. Some flood that we didn't expect could come sweeping through and take us away. So we number our days to realize, Lord, you give me another day. How can I spend this day wisely? How can I invest this day properly? What matters most? And he says, if we number our days, that's what helps us to begin to gain or obtain a heart of wisdom. That is to live wise, to live well. Because when we live with that perspective, it helps us live better, helps us live more wisely. It helps us to realize the reality. Look, if I only have a set number of days, I don't want to waste my days. I don't even want to waste a day, right? This is the idea here. We don't want to waste our lives. How many of us can look at maybe seasons or stages, not only days, maybe weeks, months, or years of our life, and go, man, I was wasting years of my life. God doesn't want us even to waste a day but to value every day, to cherish every day, to realize, as the Psalms say in another place, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. God's given us another day. Every time it's like turning, it's like, you know, all of our days are written in God's book. And I feel like that, you know, there's the beginning 
And then there's the ending. The ending's really good if you're a Christian. But then we live life kind of like in chapters and, 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 and every day it's like we turn a page. And it's another day. God gives us another day. But how are we going to use our days? I mean, the, the tragedy is, you know as well as I do, we are fantastic. We keep track and we number everything else. You know the number of your bank account. You know the quantity and the amount of your bank account. We know the number of this. We know the number of that. We know the number of how many of these we have and number of how many stocks we have. We know all that. But a lot of times what we fail to take into consideration is how many days do I have? And Lord, do I really value my days as I do valuing everything else? And so he says, number your days. Realize every day has importance and value to it because that's what makes us then live that day for God. That's what makes us be more thankful for every day. It changes our attitude and our disposition. It's the thing that makes us at times realize, you know, I should get things right with that person today. Because what if I don't get tomorrow? Right? Our world is strewn with people who live with regret for weeks, months, and years because they were one day short of making something right with somebody. And then in a blink of an eye, they lose that person. And there are people who are sitting around Thanksgiving tables this year, and, and they're going through a hard time because in this last year, they, they lost someone. And some of those people have lost someone, and they're thinking, man, if I just would have had one more day with that person, some things I wish I would have said, right? Or some things I wish I would have done or, or got right. And so when we number our days and we think from that perspective, we live life a day at a time as God's word encourages us to. He says that helps us gain a heart of wisdom. We start to live wisely. We realize what matters to God and what matters most. And he says, so Lord, help us. Teach us how to do this. Notice, teach us. It's a learning process. Teach us to do this, God, to live with the right perspective. Then verse 13, he says, return, O Lord. The idea is, Lord, restore your favor back. We've, we've lost it. We've been wandering in this wilderness, Moses. Say, How long, Lord, are we going to have to endure this season? He cries out, have compassion on your servants. Lord, be merciful to us. And then he says, verse 14, O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our, there's our word again, days. Notice what his prayer is. Lord, verse 14, satisfy us so that we're not unfulfilled, discontent, dissatisfied. Nobody likes that, but we all struggle with it from time to time, right? Discontentment, we feel dissatisfied. So he says, Lord, my prayer is satisfy us. Early, he says, with your mercy. That's that Hebrew term that has said. The idea is the loyal love of God, the devoted love of God. So he's saying, Lord, the only place I see, having lived all these years and walked through this wilderness with all my you know, companions of the nation of Israel and watched them die one after another, and it's hard, and the labor and toil, and we've struggled these 40 years in the wilderness. Hasn't been easy, but you've been kind to us and faithful even in wandering through this wilderness. Lord, you've taken good care of us. But he says, Lord, I've come to realize the only thing that really satisfies a human heart is your love, is an experience with you. So he says, Lord, would you satisfy us early every morning as we start a new day with your love? Because he says, if you satisfy us with your love and an experience with you, he says, then we can rejoice and be glad all our days. Because see, you can be having a bad day then, but if you're experiencing satisfaction internally from God, a bad day can turn into not only a tolerable day, but 
a good day. Because then you can even end the day and say, you know what, yeah, today was a bad day. It didn't go too great. But I'm still going to heaven, and God still loves me, and, and God's going to give me a new day. And, and the word of God that I read tells me that his mercies are new morning by morning. You know, I don't know about you. There have been times in my life where I have honestly literally said, you know what, I'm just going to bed. Because I know in the morning that his mercies are new <laughs> and great is his faithfulness. <laughs> and I'm so sick and tired of this day. I'm putting myself to bed early tonight. <laughs> You're getting a child's bedtime because I just want to start the day again. I want to I shut my eyes and in a blink, wake up in the morning and fresh start. New mercies, new day. And then you can just rejoice in that day because God satisfies you with his loving presence in the morning. And he says, Lord, that, that's what we long for in our hearts. He says, verse 15, Lord, please make us glad. And I like that. Make us glad. Oh, I don't know how to find gladness. He's praised, Lord, make us glad in a supernatural way by your spirit. Bring joy to our hearts. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. So, Lord, we've, we've dealt with some real challenging years here. But he says, in the same way you've afflicted us for these 40 years, restore back to us gladness, Lord. Give us years of goodness and gladness now. Restore that back to us according to the years in which we've seen evil. He's saying, Lord, we've seen some tough years. Lord, would you give us some good years now? Would you give us some glad years? And then he says, verse 16, and let your work appear to your servants. Lord, that's where we erred. We pursued our own path and that left us wandering in the wilderness. Lord, we don't want to repeat that. Lord, show us your work. Show us what you want us to do. We're your servants and may your glory be evident to their children. And then he concludes the prayer. Notice asking for the Lord's blessing upon his life knowing that god's compassionate and gracious he says and let the beauty of the lord our god be upon us let the beauty of the lord our god be upon us he says lord your favor your beauty would you bring that back into our lives lord we we're weak we're frail but you know thankfully psalm 103 says god knows our frame he has pity upon us he has compassion he knows that we're dust that we're weak and we're frail. And to, to come before an almighty God and to be able to acknowledge that. And Lord, we've, we've made you know, some tough days for ourselves and we've suffered sometimes the consequences and we're, we've been wandering around in this wilderness because some of the choices we made that we probably shouldn't have made. But Lord, we're just asking, would you restore back to us some beauty? Take some of the ugliness out of our life. Lord, would you bring back some of your good beauty into our life. And I love how he says here, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us because God, the Bible tells us, can give beauty for ashes. You can bring God a charred pile of mess and have burnt your whole house down. And but you throw those ashes at the feet of Jesus and a miraculous almighty God and God says, you can give me ashes. But if you give them to me, I can miraculously take those ashes of what you burnt up and ruined, and I can rebuild a beautiful thing. I can make a beautiful life still. What a wonderful thing to have that kind of hope. You know, the word beauty speaks of attraction, right? When something's beautiful, it's attractive. And I think what Moses understood is the most beautiful and attractive thing about a life is when it's lived in right relationship with God. That's what makes a life beautiful. All the things we measure in our world of what's beautiful, attractive, that's not beautiful and attractive. What's beautiful and attractive is when a person lives in right relationship with God, they become a beautiful person. 
That's what makes someone incredibly attractive. And then he asked for God's blessing upon what they would do, saying, Lord, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In other words, Lord, we're asking, when he says establish the work of our hands, we're saying, Lord, what we do, make it successful. Make it prosper. Now, again, he wouldn't ask the Lord to do that if they were doing something that wasn't God's will. They know what their life was like when they weren't doing God's will. They just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Moses knew that. But he says in the prior verses, let your work appear to your servants. So if we're going to do something that's not God's, God's will, we're kidding ourselves to ask God to bless and establish the work of our hands. If the work of our hands is our hands meddling in selfish, sinful, wrong, and disobedient things. That's not God's will. And God will not bless sin. He won't. That's why the children of Israel wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience and their rebellion. But when we do the will of God and we're doing what's right before the Lord and we're putting our hands to what God wants us to do, that's in alignment with the will of God and the word of God, then we can confidently pray, pray, Lord, we're doing what you want us to do. Would you establish the work of our hands? Would you bless what we're doing, cause it to prosper because, Lord, it's for your glory and for your purposes? You know, how wonderful as we transition, you know, from where we are today and we celebrate Thanksgiving tomorrow, we enter, you know, kind of this transitional period through Christmas and into a new year. It doesn't matter what the last year has been. You know, I just was speaking to someone recently and and just reminding them again, listen, you can't go back to what's trans, but what you can do. Philippians says, those who are mature have this mindset forgetting what's behind and reaching forward towards what's ahead. And, and, and just saying, Lord, whatever's ahead, I want to live with a heart of wisdom. And Lord, I ask that you'd help me to measure my days properly and one day at a time to keep reaching forward towards what's ahead. You know, what a great psalm to contemplate the realities of what Israel experienced, and through all those things, you know what's a wonderful thing? As we talked about, as they wandered in those wilderness for 40 years, Moses watched a lot of people perish, but Moses also saw that God faithfully preserved them for 40 years through the wilderness. God was merciful to them, and he was kind to them, and God has not changed. That's why Jeremiah 29 promises us that God knows the thoughts he thinks towards us. They're not of harm or they're of evil, but to give us a future and to give us a hope. And how wonderful to rest in that reality and to have a thankful heart from the perspective of the reality that, Lord, as we journey through our lives, you're always with us. You're always with us. And our life is fragile. You know, the very next Psalm, what Moses is going to describe there is how even though our lives are so fragile and so vulnerable, that God can preserve and protect us. In fact, before we enter into prayer, just look with me at Psalm 91. We won't go through it, but listen to what God is saying. And then we're going to spend a few moments in prayer just thanking the Lord. Here we are, so fragile, so frail, so mortal. But look what Psalm 91 declares. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. Think of our current days and listen to these words. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare, that's the traps, of the fowler. 
and from the perilous pestilence, perilous disease. He shall cover you with feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Truth is what protects us from destruction. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow by day, he says, that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes you shall look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, and in their hands thou shalt bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot, because he has set his love upon me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I shall answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Notice God does not promise that life has no trouble, but I will deliver him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We will see next time in Psalm 91, what God is saying in connection to Psalm 90 is your life's fragile. But if your life is in my hand, I can take care of you and preserve you and protect you and spare you. And if you live in right relationship with God, you don't have to live in constant panic and constant fear because God is able to take care of us, right? All of us sitting in this room tonight are a testament to one thing. God got us through another year. Did he not? He got us through another year. Can I promise the same group of us be sitting in this room at Christmas or next year? No, I can't. The will of the Lord be done. But God can take care of us. And that's something we should be incredibly thankful for, that we can have rest and peace of mind and trust God with our lives and know that he can take good care of us. Let's stand together.